Why don't you open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, if you would. Today we're going to talk about man-made religious doctrines and practices. I've already, I may have shared some of these stories with you, but... um, I remember when I was in college, a friend and I started doing quite a bit of biking together, um, just riding different parts of the state, and we actually made a trip from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, to um, Green Bay, which was about 230 miles, and we were on pedal bikes, and we decided to make that trip across the state at the end of the semester, and I remember on one particular day, we're out in the middle of nowhere riding, and we came across an Amish buggy. Now, there's some Amish in Wisconsin. There's not a lot, not nearly as many as there were in Indiana or even here in Ohio. But um, I had never seen an Amish person before. But I recognized the buggy. And so we began to come alongside the buggy. And as we did that, we could hear him kind of tell the horses to pick up the pace. So we started pedaling a little faster. We heard him do it again. And we kept doing that. We ended up racing this buggy on our bikes. And we began to realize that he was playing with us a little bit. And so we kept on down the road. And um, I don't know, it was probably a mile or two down the road. He finally kind of gave up. We were apparently much faster than his horses were. And um, so we got all the way down, and we finally decided to take a break. We were pretty exhausted from racing the buggy. So we found a stop sign. We pulled off and just kind of parked the bikes and took out, I think, our lunch or something like that. And a couple minutes later, he finally made his way up to us, and he stopped and got out of his buggy and came over to talk to us. His name was Jonas. Good Amish name. And um, so we talked to him a little bit, and I asked him some questions. And I said, I suspected he was Amish. I'd never seen one before. But he said, yeah, I'm Amish. And so we began to chit-chat a little bit, and he just kind of hung out with us while we ate his lunch. Well, at the end of that, we asked him, said, hey, can we sit in your buggy? Sure, why not? So I went up, and I jumped in the buggy, and I sat. And Dave took out my camera and took a picture of me sitting in the buggy. And so then... He jumped up in the buggy and took a picture of him, and then we both sat up, and I handed the camera to the Amish guy, and he went, like this. I thought that was a little strange. I said, well, we just want our picture taken. He said, no, no, I, just, I can't take the picture. And he just smiled friendly at us. So we said, oh, okay, you know. So then I asked if I could take a picture of him, and he said, no, 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 we can't do that. I was a little surprised. I didn't know why. I found out later that they don't believe in using cameras or having their pictures taken. In fact, we've come across some Amish dolls as we've been up to Berlin, or Berlin, however you want to pronounce it. They don't have faces on them, and it's because of their belief that it's it's a graven image. And so they have a tradition or a practice of not using cameras or and oftentimes modern technology. I came across, years later, I came across a gentleman who looked very Amish. He was an old order German Baptist. I think I may have shared this with you as well at one point. I worked with him when I was at the newspaper going through seminary. I don't remember his name any longer, but um, we had some interesting discussions. He was an old order German Baptist, which means he wore a lot of the same garb or the dress that uh, the Amish would wear. They didn't shun all modern technology, but they had certain things that they would do. For instance, one particular year, they were all headed out to California for their annual convention. And he told me, he said, our, our annual, we always have topics that we discuss, and this year's topic is derby hats. I thought it was a little unusual. Derby hats. What does that have to do with religion? He says, well, he said, apparently we have some in our church that are beginning to wear brims on their hats that are a little shorter, and they, they're referred to as derby hats. They're a little more stylish, and now we have a problem in our fellowship with derby hats. And I thought, well, that's rather unusual. He said, so we're debating whether or not derby hats will be permissible in our fellowship. Another year, what they 
decided at their, or what they talked about at their national convention was whether or not um, women could water ski because they could use modern technology. And some of them had boats. In fact, he was fairly well-to-do considering, um, you know, he had, had a small farm and stuff, but they, they made fairly decent money because they didn't have a lot of the other conveniences that we spend money on all the time. But occasionally somebody would have a, a boat or a small plot of land on a lake or whatnot, and so um, it had become rather fashionable for water skiing, apparently. And um, the women would go out and they would water ski in their full dresses, but sometimes those dresses, when they would get wet, they didn't consider them to be um, appropriate. And so the debate one particular year was whether or not women would now be permitted to water ski or not. Now, this was a gentleman who had a beautiful voice um, and loved to play guitar, but when he committed to the church, he stopped playing guitar and stopped singing. When I asked him about it, because he knew I played guitar, and so he was asking me about it one time, and um, he told me that he had played guitar and he used to love to sing. And I said, well, you don't do that anymore? He said, oh, no, no, because in my church, it's banned. You can't play guitar, you can't sing, because it's vain. It draws attention to yourself. And so I had a lot of interesting um, conversations. I just loved this dear man. He loved the Lord tremendously. Um, he was a good, godly man. But it was always interesting to talk about some of these things with him because I didn't grow up in an environment where we had many of those rules and, and regulations or whatnot. And I asked him one time, I said, you know, it's interesting, we, we talk about this and you debate these things all the time, you know, in terms of people wearing this or wearing that, um, how you behave or, or, or the things you get engaged in. I said, do these rules and regulations actually help? And he kind of got this kind of an interesting smile on his face. He said, no, not really. <laughs> He said, you know, it's just, we debate one thing after another. We have all these rules, all these regulations. He said, they, they really, we have just as much sin in our church and in our fellowship as anywhere else. It doesn't really help. Um, I said, well, then why do you do it? And he said, because I love the church and I love the people, so I commit to it. So I, I loved him for his heart and for his attitude. Um, you've heard me share before about a, pa- a seminary professor of mine who showed up at church one particular Sunday morning. They were welcomed all the way down. They sat in the very front pew of the church, and as the pastor came out, he said, Ah, oh, the Lord's told me to change my sermon this morning, and he preached a sermon on why women shouldn't wear pants. And then they realized that my the friends of mine, they were the only ones, the woman was wearing pants in the whole entire church. In that particular church, women didn't wear pants. It was considered wrong. Another friend of mine one time showed up at a church, loved the church, loved the people, but after the service was done, he's standing at the back door of the church, and the pastor greets him and had some great conversations with him about being in seminary and that, and all of a sudden he stops and he says, young man, what's that you have under your arm? And Craig looks and he says, well, that's my NIV study Bible. And the pastor reaches out, grabs it with his hand, and looks at it and goes, son, that ain't no Bible! Because it wasn't a 1611 King James version of the Bible. And that church... It was a sin to use anything else. Now, why do I share these, these stories? They're just examples of man-made traditions or regulations or doctrines. And as much as we can look at some of these things and we can say, well, that's kind of legalistic, isn't it? You know, or we may think some of them, like the derby hats, might be a little silly. But the reality is we all have in our lives some man-made religious practices or traditions. Uh, we're doing one right here right now. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We usually do a service where we have an opening song and then we have our teaching time and then we spend a few more minutes singing. Then we have a prayer time. The Bible doesn't tell us we have to do it that way, but that's the way we do it, right? It's a man-made tradition. In fact, the early church, some of them met every single day. We don't do that. There are some fellowships that believe they should. 
How many of you pray before meals? How many of you feel guilty when you don't? That's a tradition. I grew up where we said grace, the same prayer as, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, the same prayer every meal. Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, it's a tradition that we had. We did it the same way. There are other Christians that don't shop on Sunday. They don't drink any forms of alcohol at all. They don't go to movie theaters. They don't shop at Home Depot because of what they support. We have these traditions, these things that we do. And sometimes they carry the weight of, well, this is what God expects. And sometimes they don't. So sometimes these practices um, borderline or cross the line into legalism. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just practices that we believe are proper ways for us to live out our faith. But I want to look at this this morning because the passage we're going to cover deals specifically with that. When do things like this become dangerous? When are they bad? Are they okay? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, has a lot to say about this. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7. We're in the first five verses to start with. Mark indicates that a group of Pharisees and scribes gather around Jesus. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know... Oh, wait a minute, that's Romans. Let me turn to, let me turn to Mark. That's what happens when you stick your notes in the wrong passage. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So you'll notice there's two groups of people here that come around Jesus. It says specifically that they had come from Jerusalem. What we see in this text here is this is likely a delegation of religious leaders that came from Jerusalem for a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to confront Jesus over something. This is not just um, a group of Pharisees or Sadducees or or, um, religious leaders that had just happened to be in the area. They specifically came as a delegation from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus. There are two specifically here that are mentioned, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, they're the scholars. You might consider them modern-day seminary professors. They were the ones whose job it was to interpret and to to, uh, teach the word. Ezra, in fact, was called a scribe, and he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. That's the definition of a scribe, was somebody who was well-versed in the teachings of the law, the Old Testament. It was their job to be the teachers. They were the scholars. But in their zeal and their commitment to obeying the law of God, they came up with these man-made requirements or traditions that they believed would help people carry out the law or to prevent breaking the law. By the time of Jesus, however, these traditions carried as much weight and in fact oftentimes carried more weight than the law of God did. This is likely one reason why God warned against doing this. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. When God gave the law, He warned the Israelites about this. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you. So what God did was when He gave the law to Moses, He said, don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. And the reason you can't do that is because you need to learn to obey the law. In other words, by adding to God's law, God knew that they would wander from God's law. And so the prohibition was given to Moses, don't add or take away. This is what you need. It's all you need. But, 
the scribes in their zealousness started adding to the word of God, adding rules and regulations to it. Now, in all fairness, they did this because they believed it would help them prevent violating the law of God. For instance, the idea of not not working on the Sabbath. Well, they started to define what work meant. Well, it means you couldn't carry your mat more than three feet. You couldn't prepare a meal in a certain way. You had to prepare the meal ahead of time because those are all work. You can't help the poor on the Sabbath because that's, that's work. So they came up with all these rules and regulations. The Pharisees are the other group here. Think of these as the pastors or the shepherds. They're the ones that ran the local synagogues where the Jews met. They were extremely influential among the Jews. They um, were well respected by the people because of their commitment to personal piety. Um, They were devoted to religious living and those are the ones that interacted more often with the people directly than the scribes. They were the ones that people would turn to for help. However, like the scribes, they focused more on man-made religion than they did on the law of God. In fact, they believed that if people didn't carry out their traditions, they were sinning. They were in violation of the law itself just by not following the external rules. And so that's ultimately what leads to this confrontation here with Jesus. These scribes and these Pharisees are upset because Jesus and his disciples are not um, following one of their traditions. Look at verses 2 through 4. And he had seen that some of his or they had seen that some of his disciples were eating with bread or eating their bread and doing it with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus, thus observing the law or the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves, and there are many other things which they had received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So what we find is that some of Jesus' disciples here are eating bread without washing their hands. Now I know there's some of you parents out there who are freaking out (laughs) because you've beaten it into your kids' heads. You don't eat without washing your hands! But see, that's not the concern of the Pharisees here. They weren't worried about germs or the disciples getting sick. Rather, they believed that eating without washing one's hands in made them impure, it defiled them. In fact, it says here, they're washer, they're eating with impure hands. That phrase is used twice in this passage. Impure hands. They objected because it violated their tradition. Now what's interesting is it wasn't an Old Testament law. Um, There's only one Old Testament law that has anything to do with washing, and it applies to priests. They had to prepare by washing themselves before entering the temple to offer sacrifices. But there was no law given specifically to the rest that they had to wash their hands or anything else before eating. Mark and the Pharisees themselves refer to the practice as traditions here. Notice it doesn't say the law, it says the traditions of the elders. You're not obeying our traditions passed down to us from generation after generation. Mark actually provides a little bit of a hint into the method that they were referring to here. Notice it says in verse 3, unless they carefully washed their hands, the phrase is literally, wash with or wash their hands with their fists. The reason it's not translated that way is because it, it would confuse us. So the translators in the New American Standard here say, carefully wash their hands. But the literal text is, wash their hands with their fists. One scholar describes it this way, there was this elaborate practice of first scooping up water with cupped hands, You would then raise your hands up in the air like this, wiggle your fingers and let the water run down. 
Okay? Then you would take your hands and you would point them straight down so that the water would run down over past the wrists and off the ends of the fingertips. And then that wasn't enough because then one of the other people with you would take a little pitcher, scoop up water, you would hold your hands, they would pour the water over your hands, and you would scrub your hands with closed fists. So this nice elaborate way of washing your hands. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were objecting to. That the disciples of Jesus weren't following that extreme practice of washing their hands. To emphasize the point, we look at verse 4 and it says, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. This literally word for sprinkle. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper copper pots. In other words, Mark goes on to say, these Pharisees had a lot of these types of traditions, especially when it came to washing and cleansing, such as sprinkling themselves and washing out cups and pots and pitchers. Now again, we would look at that from a cleanliness standpoint, but that's not what the Pharisees had in mind here. It was all religious ritual. You have to do this because God commands it. I grew up in a, uh, in a church, Catholic church, where um, they have not just the Word of God, but traditions. And the tradition carries as much weight as the Word of God because they are two forms of authority. Now, oftentimes when, when that happens, what you find is that the, the traditions override the other source of authority, which we would say is the only source of authority, the Word. I had a conversation with a gentleman at work the other day. I mentioned this last Sunday. His name was Jeffrey. And he talked, he was a gentleman who went to seminary to be a priest. He's not a priest. Um, But he talked, oftentimes he would mention the tradition of the church and the weight that it carries. I would talk to him about the Word of God. He would talk about the tradition of the church oftentimes. Why? Because it carried a tremendous amount of weight, the traditions, the things that were passed on. We believe this because we got it from Pope so-and-so and he got it from somebody else. And so that's what's actually going on here. The Pharisees and the scribes accuse Jesus and his disciples regarding these traditions. We look at verse 5 here of chapter 7. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with impure hands? That's not just a question, that's an accusation. We know what that's like. Why are you doing this? We don't really want to know why. It's an accusation. And that's what was happening here. This isn't an innocent question. It's an accusation against Jesus. They were basically saying, you're violating the law, and they had come down from Jerusalem to confront that. So they had a problem with it. Well, how do you suppose Jesus would respond to this? Considering that that when he gave the law in Exodus, warned against this. Well, it shouldn't shock us and surprise us then how Jesus is actually going to respond to this. Look at um, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to read, uh, I'm sorry, look at verses um, 6 through 8. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's never a good way to start out a conversation, is it? (laughs) Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, or their heart, is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So he first calls them out on their hypocrisy. Why is it hypocrisy? Well, it's because they claim to be upholding the law, but they're not. They're upholding their man-made traditions. 
Jesus says a number of things here. One is, they honor God with their lips, but not their heart. That's verse 6. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is not far from me. I can say that it's very easy to follow religious traditions and man-made precepts and laws without having the proper heart. In fact, that's almost easier. You know, it's almost easier just to perform, just to do it. And that's what they were doing here. He says, you honor me with your lips. We're obeying God. In fact, with this confrontation with Jesus, they came down with the premise of saying, you're violating the law. Very easy to do. But he also says the worship of God is empty because they thought their own traditions as if they were God's word. He says in verse 7, but in vain do they worship me. That's empty, meaningless. Because they teach as doctrines the precepts of men. In fact, he goes a little bit further because he says that in doing that, in spite of their claims of being committed to God, in spite of their their claims to be pious, they were actually neglecting the word of God because of this. He says that in verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. So basically what they're doing is they're canceling out God's word by their traditions. Look at verses 9-13. through He's going to give an example here. He says, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your fathers and mother, or your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So what's he talking about here? First of all, he calls them experts at this. That's not a good thing. They were experts. They had honed their skill at teaching traditions of men to circumvent the commandments of God. They become experts at it. He gives an example here called Corbin. God's word stipulates that children ought to honor their parents, which includes caring for them financially. What's that? There you go. Amen, right? Children are expected to care for their parents when they're in need. In fact, it's interesting because in the New Testament we're told that um, they kept lists of widows. But before a widow could be put on the list, meaning um, the church became the responsible party to care for her needs, they first had to check with, does she have any living children? Because if she has living children within the church, it's their burden, their responsibility, not the church's responsibility, but their responsibility to care for mom or dad, widow or widower. If they didn't have anyone, they didn't have any children, if if they had brothers or sisters within the church, they were obligated and expected. If they didn't have that, then they were put on a list, and the church cared for their needs. And why is that? Because God expects us to care for our parents when there's need. That was the expectation. Pharisees knew it. Jews knew it. Early Christians knew it. Not everybody practiced it. But in this particular case, the Pharisees permitted people to get around that requirement by making a declaration. They could take all of their possessions 
And they could say, these are all Corbin. They're given to God. They're God's. I don't own them now. They're not mine. They belong to God. And in doing that now, they no longer could use those things to care for their parents. Now, the strange thing about this is they could live off the stuff still. It's not like they took it out of the temple and gave it all up. They just declared it to be God's. All this is God's now. So they could live off it. They could still enjoy it. It wasn't God's until they died. That's when God actually got his hands on it. So in the meantime, they could still continue to live as if they always did, enjoying the fruits of their labor, enjoying their wealth. But the one thing they didn't have to do anymore was they didn't have to honor their parents with it and care for their parents because it belongs to God. It's not really mine to do with what I want. Kind of a squirrely way to get around the law, right? But that's what they did. And, And why did they do that? Basically, because they didn't want to care for their parents. It's my money. I had to be able to do what I want with it. But you can't just say that because the law commands it. So how do you get around with it? We give it to God and now we're not obligated. And so that's what he's, he's refer, what um, Jesus is referring to here. What we find here is that these man-made traditions effectively cancel out God's word. You know, I had to, I had to think through this myself just recently because my mom's a widower, or a widow right now, and so she has her house and she has their retirement savings. She'll probably have enough money to live out her retirement as long as there's no um, big financial burden, you know, but let's say that mom ends up having to be cared for in a nursing home of some kind. Well, there are ways that you can protect assets, meaning you can take and she could give her home to her kids now. And that way, when and if she ever needs care in a nursing home, If she has no assets, the state will take care of that to some degree. She can go into a Medicaid or a Medicare facility to be cared for. Um, So we could do that to protect her assets so that us kids would have something to be passed on to us. And so we talked about this as kids. But our determination was, well, but if mom ends up, up in a nursing home and needs care and bleeds through all of her retirement savings and needs care... We don't want to hand her over to the state. We would not feel comfortable still possessing her house just so that we can have some of the retirement money. So our decision was, no, let mom keep the house. Because even if she passed it off to us, if she ever found herself in a situation where she had needs, we're going to sell the house anyway. Because we're obligated to do that. We couldn't stand before Christ and say, well, we just handed it over to the state. Now, Good thing that the state can be there to help because maybe maybe we sell the house and she burns through that. But at least we could say at some point that, you know what, um, we've cared for her as best we can. And I know us kids are already committed where if mom ever needs help, she'll get our help as well because we're obligated to that. We're not just going to pawn her off. Why? Because we think God's word tells us to do that. Now notice he says in verses 12 through 13 here, that because of this, the Pharisees no longer permitted individuals who had declared this korban, no longer permitted them to do anything for his father or mother. The reason it says this is because if an individual did this, and later on an individual felt bad and said, I need to take care of my parents, the Pharisees prevented them from doing that because they said, you are now violating the law. That money belongs to God. You have no right to use that to take care of your parents. 
So that's why Jesus said, you don't even permit them to do the law anymore because of this. Your man-made traditions actually are invalidating, verse 13 it says, thus invalidating, making of no value the word of God by your traditions which you've handed down. Means that they've made it void. Made God's word valueless. So their tradition had actually canceled canceled out God's command to honor parents. <laughs> Verse 13, Jesus says, and you do many such things as this or as that. In other words, this is just one example that Jesus gave of the Pharisees and how their traditions prevented people from carrying out God's law. That's often the case with man-made traditions, rules and regulations and things that we come up with. At a minimum, what it does is it focuses us on those man-made rules and regulations so that we're not focusing on God's Word. Do you think maybe that's a tool of Satan to some degree? He doesn't have to put into our head, just violate God's Word. All he has to do is say, don't pay attention to it. Make us feel as though certain traditions and practices are more important. So all he's got to do is distract us. And so at a minimum, sometimes these man-made rules and regulations, the religiosity that we come up with, at a minimum are distractions because we spend more time thinking about those. You know, it's interesting how, um, you know, the whole debate over um, which version of the Bible to use, etc., and some of the um, strictest of the independent Baptists, movement where they focus much more on the externals, women not wearing pants, um, having to use a 1611 King James version of the Bible. If you listen to many of those arguments, um, they're just empty and they're just, they're void. Because it, 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 it um, using a 1611 King James version, nothing wrong with that. Great translation. Okay? But nowhere does God command us. Well, Paul used it, you have to as well. You know? Um, it's a distraction. And so what you'll find oftentimes, like this friend of mine, Craig, when the pastor saw he had this NIV study Bible tucked under his arm, all of a sudden now the focus was on, you're sinning because you're using... It wasn't as much interested in Craig. It wasn't a sit down and let's talk. It wasn't a discussion over, well, you know, we're not a real fan of the NIV translation. You might be better off because you might see God's word more clearly. None of that at all. It was just, oh my gosh, he's using this aberration of a translation. I've got certain translations, you know, the Message Bible that I look at and go... It makes my skin crawl. Okay? But that shouldn't be the focus, should it? Now, if I find a pastor who's teaching from the message, I may have a conversation with him, you know. But, is he sinning? The Word of God doesn't tell me that he is. It becomes the focus, these man-made traditions. Jesus actually doesn't want to leave it sit here, though. Because the Pharisees were concerned that by by not following these man-made traditions that somehow the disciples were defiled. Well, that's a bad thing. You know, there were things in the Old Testament law where um, certain things caused defilement. And so it is something to be concerned with. So I would have to cut a break to the scribes and the Pharisees here. They were misinformed. They thought it was a violation of their traditions that defiled them. Defilement is not a good thing. So Jesus talks with the disciples about defilement. Kind of straightens things out here. Look at verse 14. 
After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defiles the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So he basically repudiates the teachings of the Pharisees here. He says, it's not the things that go into you. It's not what you eat. It's not what you, not the fact that you didn't wash your hands now. Those things, Jesus says outright, do not defile. may make you sick. But again, that's not the concern, right? Concern is on defilement here. So Jesus declares the teaching of the Pharisees to be false. It's not what goes into a person. It's not the fact that he didn't wash his hands. It's not a fact that he happened to eat pork or shrimp. Those things don't ultimately defile. Instead, he says, the things that come out from within. Those are the things, he says, that defile. Again, verse 15, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man, those are the things that defile him. I want you, I'm going to read, to read from Matthew chapter 15 because the repudiation, according to Matthew, might have been a little starker. It says, Matthew 15, verses 12 through 14, says this, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my father, heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. In other words, what he just basically said is, don't listen to these Pharisees. They're blind. And if you follow them, you'll fall in a pit. The problem with following teachers who teach man-made traditions, or all of these religious rites that you don't find in the scriptures, is that it's blind people. They don't know anything. And they're simply leading people astray. And they're all going to fall into a pit. It's interesting the, the attention that Paul gives to false teaching like that. Some of the language is pretty bold and pretty strong. I'll leave that to you to read, but you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you see some of that language. God does not take kindly to false teaching, and that oftentimes means teaching the traditions of men as if God himself had said it. Telling a man you can't wear a derby hat because somehow it defiles you is wicked. Plain and simple. I had shared with you this gentleman from the newspaper. I remember this one time where he came in, he had, his car had died. So he brought a new car and it was parked out front. He would deliver newspapers too. Like, um, he'd pull in and he would work with me in, in helping distribute newspapers to all the carrier, the kid carriers, but then he himself had a paper route. And so he would pull his car up to the dock and um, load it up with the papers. And so I saw him pull up one time. So oh, I got himself a new car. He says, yeah, he goes, people aren't happy about it though. And I'm like... Why not? He's like, I already got a visit. And what he meant by it was a visit from some of the elders in his fellowship. I'm like, so what are they concerned with? And he's like, you notice anything about my car there? And I'm looking at him going, just looks like an old car. He's like, he could walk up to it and see my reflection. I went, oh yeah, because you got chrome. You see, chrome was prohibited. And he had bought this new car, not new car, it was an old, old car, but it had chrome on it. He had to paint all the chrome, and he hadn't gotten around to it yet. He had already gotten a visit from the elders because he was violating one of the laws, and he just, he'd only had the car a couple of days. He hadn't gotten around to painting the chrome black on it so that there would be no reflection. 
Now, in that particular instance, it wasn't so much the reflection that was the issue. It was that it was too fancy. See, chrome was fancy. And it would make people envious because if he pulled up with a new, fancy, expensive car because it had chrome on it, that would cause others to envy him and they would covet it and would want one themselves. So he had to cover up the chrome so that it wouldn't look so fancy anymore and it wouldn't cause people to covet. That was the whole thing. It wasn't the chrome. (laughs) It wasn't the chrome. The issue was coveting. So Jesus explains to his disciples that the real source and nature of defilement is what comes out of the heart, what comes from the inside. Look at verses 17 through 23. When he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it goes out. Or it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. In other words, when he goes potty, all gets eliminated. So it goes in the mouth and the body does what it needs to do with the food and then it eliminates the rest, the waste. It's the way it's supposed to work, right? He's like, so that, that eating the wrong things, you're not washing your hands, can't defile you. Verse 20, and he says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, from within, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murderers, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So what did Jesus just say? Stop focusing on the external. Stop focusing on the religious rights, the regulations, all the rules. Somehow thinking. That God is pleased with all those acts of good works. Instead, think about what's coming out. That's what defiles you. That's what makes us wicked, if you will. So it's what comes out. So instead of maybe pulling this gentleman at work aside and confronting him about the chrome on his car because it might cause other people to covet... Maybe they focus on what's coming out of the heart. He wasn't sinning. He didn't go out and buy himself the fancy car of chrome just to make his fellow Old Order German Baptists covet. His heart wasn't to cause them to sin. It wasn't because he was prideful and thought, look at me, I've got this nice shiny car. I just want to show it off so people look at me. He was trying to get a vehicle to deliver newspapers because his car died. But you know, it's interesting because in his case, he went and he painted his bumpers. Why? Because what was in his heart was going to honor the fellowship. If it causes anybody to stumble, I'll stop doing it. I don't need chrome on my car. Great example of what was in his heart. So what do we do with all this? Obviously, Jesus isn't just talking about washing hands or food here. The emphasis throughout this passage is on how man-made religious rules and traditions are often diametrically opposed to God's word. At a minimum, they distract. At worst, they prevent us from carrying out God's laws. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle 
do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, the reason that is important is because the Colossians were caught up in a form of early Gnosticism, which basically meant that they could become more holy, they could become more righteous, they could learn more about God by involving in all of these physical practices. And what Paul basically says is, those don't protect you against indulgence of your flesh. It doesn't protect you from sin. And so it's funny because, as I mentioned, this gentleman from the newspaper, again, when I asked him outright, do any of these things, the derby hat ban and the, the chrome ban and not being able to sing, do any of those rules work? Do they keep you guys from sinning? And he chuckled and he said, no, they don't. Next year is just a whole other topic to debate, something else we have to eliminate. But every year we have to debate the same things over, not the same things, but the same issue over and over. This will cause people to sin. And he said, none of it works. None of it works. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Paul is saying here. So what is the real issue then? Remember, Jesus said that it's what comes out. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. And we'll wrap it up with this. Paul struggled. Kimberly and I just went over this, I think, last week in our morning Bible study that we had on Friday or Saturday morning. I think we'd all agree that Paul was probably one of the greatest of all the apostles. A man who loved righteousness. Probably would put many of us to shame. But yet, he still struggled. Romans chapter 7, he says, verse 14... The law is spiritual, but I'm also a flesh sold into, bo- or sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I practice what I would like to do, or I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I, do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. For now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find that a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Basically what Paul is saying here is he struggled. He didn't do the things he wanted to do. He did the things he didn't want to do, and he saw that battle. But you notice what he blames it on? He says, it's not me. With my mind, I'm serving Christ. But my flesh sometimes, I serve the law of sin. And why is that? He says, because sin dwells in me. While we may be new creatures in Christ, we may um, have given our lives to Christ and come to Him, that doesn't eradicate the fact that within us we still have this sin beast. And so he says that that that, that stupid thing raises its ugly head sometimes. And it wages war. And it causes me to do things sometimes that I don't want to do, and it prevents me from doing things I want to do. 
reflects exactly what Jesus said. It's what's inside. Now the solution, Paul says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? In other words, who's going to set me free from this constant struggle? He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. But he starts here by saying, with my mind, I'm going to serve the law of God. In other words, he's focusing on the word of God there. But he goes on, I won't read all of this, but what we find in chapter 8 here is that Paul now tells us that we have the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And that submission to that Spirit is ultimately what helps us to overcome sin. And why is that? It's because the Spirit dwells inside of us. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, But the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Basically what Paul is saying is the solution to the problem posed by the Pharisees, which is trying to live a righteous life, trying to honor God, trying to obey the law in their case, they were focused on the practices, the external things. But Jesus says, no, the problem is what's going on inside here. And Paul here tells us that you got a little war going on. Because you're still in the flesh, sin likes to take opportunity with it. And that sin still dwells inside. It's kind of like Cain and Abel. Remember, God told Cain, there's this beast, is crouching at the door, his desires to have you, but you must master it. Well, the reality of it is, the only way for us to master it now is to recognize that we have the Holy Spirit that also indwells us, lives within us. Which means, we should focus rather on, are we submitting to the Spirit? Are we submitting to His direction? Not, are we focusing on all these rules and regulations that we somehow think make us righteous or make us holy? Because they don't. In fact, they take our mind off of that and put it instead on those rules and regulations. Which means, when I say grace before we eat, I feel good, because I did it. I could check that off. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray before we eat. But what I'm saying is, if we're doing those types of things, because they're just rules we do as Christians, then we're missing the point. And so while the Pharisees, like I said, in all honesty, were concerned with righteousness, they had it all wrong, because they focused on all the external rules and regulations. And the reality of it is, it was what was coming out of the heart. And what Jesus tells us about the Pharisees is that their hearts were far from the Lord. And it's because they were focused on the rules and the regulations. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, recognized that, recognized his struggle still, but he said, Christ is the solution to that. The Spirit is the solution to that. That's what comes out of my heart. That's the solution to that. Which means we ought to be focusing more on what the Spirit is doing in our heart and our life than the rules and the regulations. Now, does that mean we don't have rules and things that we apply? They're not always bad, you know? We make decisions on 
certain things we might do or might watch because we know they might be a temptation to us. But in some respects, that's listening to the Spirit, isn't it? You know? We teach our daughters to dress a certain way. Why? So they look respectable, so that they don't make men look at them in an inappropriate way. So rules and regulations aren't always bad, but they're not the end game. Making my daughters dress a certain way doesn't make them righteous, because what makes them righteous is the work of the Spirit in their heart. Their desire to serve and to honor the Lord.